Welcome to the HT Cambridge podcast. For more information, see our website, htcambridge.org.uk. Tonight's reading is from Luke chapter 12, and it's verses 13 to 21. The parable of the rich fool. It's on page 1045 in the Red Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Good evening. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open, and uh, I'll be referring back um, to the passage. Well, I don't know uh, if you've seen the preaching program, or you look at the notice outside, but it's been pointed out to me, I have to say, by one of my younger colleagues, who I am extremely fond of. Um, And she said, did you know that this is how it goes. Last week, when God says, well done, Rupert Charkham. (laughs) This week, when God says, you fools, I and then. (laughs) And next week, it's when God says, go, John Irvin. (laughs) So it's been the the subject of much merriment um, among us. Um, Well, this evening, we are continuing on our mini-series, in our mini-series on phrases that come from the mouth of God. Um, in the scriptures. And tonight, we're looking at the one point in the New Testament when God says to someone, you fool. What a chilling thing for God to say. And, And although it's not a merry subject, this story is one of great help because it gives us an insight into the things that we can do where we can be rich towards God. It gives us insight into the things that are of value to God. And so let's pray that we learn from this passage and that the Lord speaks to us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is life to us. And Lord, we pray that you will come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you'll use my words and pray that you will speak to every one of us from your words. Um, And we pray, Lord, that we won't remain the same. We pray that we will change as a result of hearing you speak to us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, I'd just like to look a little bit at the context um, of this passage. And at the beginning of the chapter, we discover that there are thousands of people who are all milling around Jesus. And it says that they're trampling on one another. And Jesus started speaking to his disciples. So in the midst of all these thousands, he was speaking to his disciples, but other people were clearly listening in on it. And 
He's speaking about warnings, he's, he's encouraging them, and suddenly, almost as a sort of gaping um, non-sequitur, it seems to really turn everything um, that Jesus is talking about, um, this man shouts out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What a socially awkward situation. I mean, what an extraordinary thing for someone to say in the middle of a teaching time. And he wants Jesus to take his side. He doesn't seem to be truly interested in justice because there's, there's no sense of him saying, Lord, will you, will you listen and hear both of our points of view and then you make a decision. There's none of that. Um, he clearly wants Jesus to take his side. And Jesus doesn't engage. Uh, well, at least he engages, but he doesn't judge the man in the way the man is expecting and hoping. And he says, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus has been appointed by the Father to be the judge. One day he will judge us. But this is not the time and this is not the way that he's going to do that. And then he goes on to talk to the man and he addresses the real issue that needs to be judged, the motive behind the request for help. As one person says, when a fellow says, it isn't the money, it's the principle, it's the money. And like most of us, the man wanted to be dealt with well. He wanted justice, and of course, we can understand that. And obviously, it isn't that Jesus isn't concerned about justice. But from the context, it's clear that Jesus knew that at root, his, this man's desire for money was in danger of consuming him. It was going to do him far more harm than not having his share of the inheritance. And so Jesus goes on to say, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So what's going on here is actually not, not, a, not a desire for justice. It's a desire for money. And Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and many other so-called spiritual subjects. 16 out of 38 parables speak about money and possessions. And in the Gospels, an astonishing one in 10 um, verses deals with money. So why is that? Well, it's because money is the commonest rival to God. The thing is that obviously money in itself is, is nothing. It's bits of metal and bits of paper. But we've made it our currency, and it's only important for us because it enables us to exchange it for things that we really do prize and for things we value. And what we do with our money shows what we value in our heart. If you look at your next bank statement, it'll tell you a lot about the things that you really value. I challenge you to do so. But while money is useful, it also has a power over us if we let it that is frightening, and it deceives us with its promises. The man in the story believed that somehow having his inheritance would be the answers to his problem, or his problems. And there are three things that money tells us that are too easy to buy into. Money says, with me, you'll have significance. And of course, people will take us seriously to some degree and treat us in a certain way when we have money. It's not a, we see it in films, someone slips a, a I don't know, 50 pound note and they get through to the room that they're not meant to, meant to be able to go to. Um, and, and, and we see it around us and it's, sort of really leaves us with a, a sense of distaste. But nonetheless, people, I guess, do take us seriously. And of course, 
it is a very conditional significance. Take the story of the prodigal son. When he had money, he had friends. But the moment he lost his money, he found his friends completely disappeared. The sort of friend who takes us seriously because we have money is also, so, is also the sort of person who is going to drop us like a ton of bricks when we don't. As Oprah Winfrey said, everyone wants to ride with you in the limo, but what you want is someone who will take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. Money will never give you lasting significance. It's an empty promise. Money says, with me, you'll be secure. In a survey in 2012, 95% of people surveyed said, said their income or the amount of money they have is directly related to their sense of security. And the survey concluded, no matter how much we have, it never feels like enough. We're never quite secure enough, and thus we get caught up in the constant quest for more. The danger is, like an old proverb says, money is like seawater. The more a person drinks, the thirstier they become. Money will never bring us real and lasting security. It's an illusion. Thirdly, money tells us that it will bring us happiness. Money says, if you lose me, you lose life, all that life can really offer you. You'll have real life if you have me. And without me, life will be gray and hard and a drudge and boring and empty. But scripture says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and darkness. Sorry, ruin and destruction. Someone once said, money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Food, but not appetite. A house, but not a home. Amusements, but not happiness. Companionship, but not friendship. Religion, but not salvation. A passport to everywhere, but heaven. And Jesus is saying here, watch out. There's a lie going on here. This inheritance is about to lead to your death. What's going on here isn't about whether you get your share of the inheritance, but whether the desire for it will destroy you. And not only is this inheritance not your life, but it's taking you away from the, what is your life. And he goes on to say, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. So what is true life? Well, in effect, Jesus is saying here to this man, you haven't understood what I'm here for. I'm not here to give you things that you think are going to make your life complete. You can only find life in me. I've come to give you life. I haven't come to fulfill your personal agenda. I've come to give you a whole new agenda. And we're all susceptible to buying into the claims that money makes. We're surrounded by those claims everywhere, online, in the newspapers, on the television, everywhere. So if life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions, where is it to be found? Well, John 17 is very clear. Now this is eternal life. This is life that is going to last forever. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In Jesus, we have real life. We have everlasting life. We have life that is full. And he's the only one who can bring us true and lasting significance. He's the only one that can bring us security. He's the only one that can bring us happiness. And he brings us life, and that will be a life that lasts forever. And then to emphasize this point that he's making, and to teach those who are listening, and us, Jesus tells them a story 
which I've slightly paraphrased, um, which I'll say in a minute. But only once in the whole of the New Testament does God single out one person as a fool. What a chilling indictment. What is it that could possibly have caused this man to get it so wrong? There was once a very rich and successful farmer. And one year, his land produced an unexpectedly bumper crop. It was amazing. But he had a problem. He was already rich, and his barns were already full, and this crop was plentiful. He'd have to have somewhere to store it. He made his calculations. He wouldn't just expand. He'd start again with newer and bigger and better barns, and he'd store all his crops there. He would have passed the Alan Sugar test beautifully. He made further calculations and realized that he was set up for life. This bumper crop meant that he could take early retirement and he'd never have to work again. He said to himself, mate, you've made it. From now on, life is going to be easy. I can drink fine wines, eat the best food, and I don't have to worry about a thing. Oh, I mustn't do that. <laughs> I don't have to worry about a thing. <laughs> and God says to him, you fool. Now, God doesn't call him a fool for having been successful. It's not a bad thing to do well or to look, or to, look to make wise decisions with your money. So why does God call him a fool? Well, I'd, I'd like to suggest two reasons. The first one is, he utterly lived for himself. The only relationship that's evident in this man's story is the one that he has with himself. He's self-confident, he's self-satisfied, he's self-indulgent. Look at the language he uses. I, 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 me, myself, my. And Jesus says, the ground produced a good crop, but the man only saw the crop as his. Everything is about him. He readily received the gift, but completely rejected the giver. He readily, uh, readily received everything that there was. There's no gratitude. There's no recognition that all he has is God's gift to him. And there was nothing to indicate that just as he had been blessed, so he was now in a wonderful position to bless others. He was very rich. But in God's eyes, he was a pauper. He was a fool because he only lived for himself. And secondly, he lived with no thought beyond this life. He got the best advice and thought of every eventuality, but he didn't consider the one thing that was a certainty for him and for all of us. And this is a trap that we can fall into all too easily. We use words like, he's passed away or she's passed on. We don't like to talk about death, and so we sanitize it and we put it behind high walls, and we don't think about it. Woody Allen once said, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and death. It is absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders everyone's accomplishments meaningless. Woody Allen, it doesn't have to. Everything this man valued was in this life. He valued a life of ease, and he valued filling his stomach and living the good life. All of his wealth was used for one thing, his own fun, his own enjoyment. And living for your own pleasure and that alone is fine if there is no God and there's no resurrection. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But there is a God and there is a resurrection. And one day, we will be called to account. And God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. 
Then who will get all that you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up treasures for himself but is not rich towards God. He'd stored up all his stuff and he wasn't going to enjoy any of it. More than that, even his soul would be demanded of him. And apparently the word demanded there means be returned to. So even his soul didn't belong to him. I heard of a, a couple who were looking forward to their retirement. They were young retirees, and they were looking forward to going and living in Cyprus. And the preparations were made. So many plans were put in place. They were very excited about, um, about going there. So much to look forward to. And two weeks into their beautiful new home and living there and thinking that they'd, they'd, they'd really made it, the man very unexpectedly died of a heart attack. All their dreams, in an instant, evaporated. They too, like the rich fool, had never given any consideration to what's next. And Jesus is reiterating a warning that he's made several chapters before. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good, good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? So what does it mean to be rich towards God? From the stark contrast in this passage, being rich towards God is the opposite of everything that the man was doing. It's the opposite of living as if life consists of things rather than knowing God. It's the opposite of thinking the things that we have are ours to do exactly what we like with for our sole pleasure. And there are a number of people who we come across in the New Testament who demonstrate what it is to be rich towards God. And I think these are amazing little vignettes, little pictures of what it is to be rich towards God. The widow who put the two small coins into the temple treasury. She probably didn't even know that Jesus was watching her. Charles Spurgeon said of her, the two mites of the widow were, in Christ's eyes, worth more than all the money cast into the treasury. And then he goes on to say, our gifts are not to be measured by the amount we contribute, but by the surplus kept in our own hands. In other words, it doesn't matter if we only have a small amount. That's not what, we're, what, what God looks at. He looks at what's going on in our hearts. If we've only got a small amount, but we give what we can, that's all we can give. And, and he's delighted. Zacchaeus was someone whose response to God was free and generous and joyful. He made the decision to give away half his possessions in an instant. He met with Jesus. Jesus utterly freed him. And his response to that freedom was such generosity. Another person who was rich towards God was Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet with a perfume that cost a whole year's wages. And being rich towards God means recognizing that there's nothing on earth greater than being in a relationship with Jesus. And again, Charles Spurgeon said, the one way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that you don't love other people. It doesn't mean you don't love your family. It doesn't mean you don't value things. It means that nothing else compares with having Jesus in your life. Nothing else has a hold over you. Compared to him, nothing has any lasting value at all. And that in turn means that we'll have, when we put him first, we'll have the inner freedom to be able to use money, to be able to use things for his purposes, and we won't be bound. And the rich man in the parable gave nothing away. 
It's interesting how misers in history, and I was thinking about misers, I was thinking um, Ebenezer Scrooge is one that we will, is a miser that we'll all be familiar with, or perhaps Silas Marner, the story of Silas Marner by George Eliot. And both of them and many other misers that I've since read about have this one thing in common. Um, they seem to always be solitary figures who isolate themselves and appear to trust no one. And the opposite is true of those who are generous. So look at the early church in Acts 3, 4, and 5. Like Zacchaeus, they overflowed with generosity. And those actions showed the world that something real had happened to them. And when people see that our wallets and purses have been affected by knowing Jesus, they are so much more likely to want to know more. When we put God first, we're free to use money and not be enslaved by it. When we put money first, when we put money over God, we will always be its slave. And we're told that God loves a, a cheerful or hilarious giver. It almost makes you want to smile at the thought of someone giving hilariously. And that is apparently one of the ways that you can translate that, that particular word. And David Watson tells the story of a lady who went round her house, pausing in every room and saying something like this, Lord, this television is yours. This carpet, these curtains, this sofa is yours. And then she'd go into her bedroom and she said, Lord, all these clothes, um, all my jewelry, everything, I'm just handing it over to you. Then she went to the kitchen and she said, these pots and pans, the food, it's all yours, Lord, I'm giving it to you. Then she went to the garage and said, Lord, my car is yours. And interestingly, she said afterwards that um, when she'd done that, she felt quite free to give, she felt quite free to lend and to share or do whatever the Lord told her to do with her things. She'd learnt to hold them very lightly because she recognised she was only a steward, as we all are. And a man called Stanley Druckenmiller, an American hedge fund manager, said this, once you make a lot of money, it's incredibly enjoyable to give it away. I would like to put a caveat on that. I, well, not a caveat, I'd like to add to it. I think once you have your own money to spend, however much, I don't think you have to be rich, it's incredibly joyful to give it away. And sometimes it's not, it's not particularly joyful actually writing out the check, you know, sometimes you might slightly quake at the knees, but as you put it in, I've I've, I don't think I've ever given without there being joy. And someone I spoke to many years ago, I remember he had just become a Christian, and he had had to pay off a debt, and once he had paid it, he was able to go and put his first tithe um, in, in the collection at church. And he phoned me up afterwards, and he was, he was very emotional, and he said, I didn't know that it would be such a joyful experience. He said, I couldn't believe it. I put the money in the collection, and I was so full of joy for everything that God had done in my life. I am just so thankful to him. And he just felt he had to tell someone. There's a strong link between giving to the Lord and knowing his joy, and you rarely have one without the other. However, Jesus doesn't want, um, want our money unless it comes out of a heart of worship to him. And so if you're here this evening and you're not sure whether you've actually ever given your life to Jesus Christ, you don't know whether you have a relationship with him really, you might believe, but you've never actually asked him to come in, then all I can say is please don't hear that he wants you to give your money. The only thing he wants from you is you. The only thing he wants is for you to recognize that you've gone your own way and he wants you to come to him. He wants your worship. The money and other stuff will come after that. 
the rest will come. And it has to be that way around. It doesn't work if you give your money, as, as some people do, to the church, to charities, if it doesn't spring out of an overflow of love and gratitude for what God has done in your life. And the thing is, relationship with him will last forever. Our, possess our possessions will fall apart or break or spoil, but God's kingdom will never stop. When we invest in him, we invest for eternity. And the rich man in the parable had no relationship with God and gave him nothing. Money and pleasure had become his God, and it became what he treasured, and it had a hold over him. And a few chapters on from this passage, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. And the issue with the, with the rich fool wasn't that he was successful or rich. It was that he had allowed something other than God to take first place in his affections. So how can I be rich towards God? Well, you know, we are so incredibly blessed in this church. I don't know how it's happened, but somehow millions of pounds have been raised through people's generous, um, kind, and sacrificial giving. And you know, we're about to have a, a church that's going to be completely transformed, that generations are going to receive from as a result of the giving that's gone on um, in, in our gift days and through this congregation. But how can I be rich towards God when all I have is what he's given me in the first place? Well, I think the first thing is recognizing that fact, recognizing that we have nothing that hasn't been gift, that hasn't been given to us by, by the Lord. And of course, our natural res response to that, once we've come to that position, our natural response will be gratitude. It will be recognizing that none of it's ours, so we don't hold tightly. We're able to hold it loosely because it's all God's. Secondly, reflect on where your heart is. From time to time, ask yourself the hard questions. Does the way I'm living demonstrate the fact that Jesus is first in my life? Or have I allowed something or someone to get in the way? If you put him over your marriage partner, over your children, over your parents, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, your ambitions, your finances, he's promised everything else will fall into place. And then I'd say, organize your tithing and start as early as you can. Get your foundations in place as, as early as possible. And for you who are leaving Cambridge, before you start to earn a, a wage packet, decide what you're going to do with your money. It's so much easier to get correct patterns in place earlier on. And if you're further down the line in life, that's fine too. It's never too late. But actually, take action if, if you're not giving regularly. Don't rely on sporadic giving. Make sure your giving is planned and that it's regular and it's disciplined. And obviously, it's very easy doing stuff online now. It makes things a lot easier. Sporadic giving without a plan will probably, probably mean that you're not treating your giving as a, an integral part of your worship. And once you've got your planned giving in space, there is so much opportunity for spontaneous and generous gifts. Ask yourself, can your friends and your colleagues tell that you're a Christian by the way you relate to your possessions? Because our attitude towards our things will demonstrate to others the outward evidence and measure of our commitment to Jesus. And I'd love to finish off with uh, a quote from John Wesley. And John Wesley was someone who 
was extraordinary. He had learned to live on really quite a small amount in comparison to the large amount that he, the income that he was bringing in. And over the years, he, he gave an awful lot away. And this is what he said. He believed that money is a tool and it can be used for great good or great ill. And he says this, it is an excellent gift of God, he claimed. Answering the noblest ends. In the hands of his children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment for the naked. It gives to the traveler and the stranger where to lay his head. But it may supply the place of a husband to the widow and of a father to the fatherless. We may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. It is therefore of the highest concern that all who fear God know how to employ this valuable talent, that they be instructed how it may answer these glorious ends and in the highest degree. So Jesus considered the rich man a fool because he totally left God out of his life. God had blessed him with such abundance and he could have, been, he could have blessed so many people. So let's choose to learn from this massive mistake it's not too late for us and give to God what is of great value to him. Let's spend a moment or two just being quiet. If there's one thing that this passage has spoken to you about, just think about that for a few moments and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your Holy Spirit never condemns, but you do convict when we need to put things right. And so, Lord, if there's anything that any of us need to be convicted of, we ask that you'll show us. And Lord, if we need to be encouraged and built up, we pray, Holy Spirit, you'll do that too. And we give ourselves to you this evening and ask that we might be generous-hearted towards you. Lord, thank you for the freedom that comes in you. Thank you for the freedom that comes when we're generous towards you and for the joy that is always at the heart of generosity. Lord, will you hone us and mold us to be the people that you want us to be, the individuals and the church. Thank you so much that you have given us so much, Lord. And we pray that as we give to you, we'll recognize it's of your own that we give you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, and that he might be glorified in our lives. Amen.